Song number eight has just been asked of us to mark and to, of course, make ready to sing that at the appropriate time in the service this morning. How delightful it is to welcome the visitors and our membership at Pippin who've come our way this second day in May 2011. It's a delightful opportunity to appreciate, isn't it, the great blessing of God on this Lord's Day that we can assemble as He has commanded and as He has directed us and to do offer Him worship. That's so rightful and so proper given the greatness and the awesomeness that is in fact our God in heaven. Just as surely as of course today is that day set aside to honor mothers, we do of course as Brother Ted mentioned earlier, extend a very hearty day of well wishes to all of our mothers who are present. We hope in fact that you appreciate very much how much you're thought of and in fact all the things of course that you have been able to benefit those whom you love and those who love you so much. There's a sense in which that'll be a part of our lesson today, as might perhaps have been expected, but also to use that to motivate us to consider some very special matters about the issue, in fact, of forgiveness. I've listed on the wall to my left some of the features that we'll use in terms of our title today. It is in the form of a question. What must I do to be forgiven with that text that was just read for us a moment ago from the 40th verse of Acts chapter 2? As we consider some of the features related to that, might we just a moment revisit a thought or two about those mothers that we mentioned just a moment ago. Isn't it interesting as you consider some of those thoughts that today, many of us as well as the world at large, will offer to mothers a card, perhaps some flowers, other kinds of gifts that might in fact be so pleasing to her, but it still is true, isn't it, from the texts of the Scriptures of God that remind us that three of the greatest gifts of all that any godly mother would wish above all others would be these. First, a loving and faithful husband, respectful and obedient children, and a peaceful and godly home. A godly mother would rank those, no doubt, far above any other particular matters that might be extended to her for those she appreciates as they emanate from the heart of those whom she cherishes and loves. And no doubt many mothers in this particular auditorium would appreciate the value of blessings like that and no doubt the years of character concerning them. As you give some thought to those, though, as well, what are some of the things that a mother as well as all of us would understand would be the needs of the human frame. We know that there's need for food and water. We understand that from an early age we're born with those instincts to some degree. And certainly as the years pass by, we are aware of the acute need we have for those physical matters as well as shelter and other things. One could even list companionship, and God, in fact, took care of making provision for that in the second chapter of the book of Genesis. But might we also notice the greatest need of all that you and I can appreciate is that of forgiveness. That does raise some interesting questions, doesn't it? We know that there are some people in this world who have done and continue to do things that are reckoned as exceedingly evil for themselves and also that which impacts others in such a harmful and detrimental way. Those that peddle and sell drugs, those that take innocent lives, those who involve themselves in other activities that bring such harm to themselves as others. We might notice, how are they to be forgiven? But might we even extend that to others? What about those who maybe you and I have acted disrespectfully to our parents, to maybe mother at one point or another? 
Maybe we've acted in a way that we've lived to regret. How do we obtain forgiveness for that? Today, let's discuss the answer to that question. What must I do to obtain forgiveness? And along the way, we shall find some rather penetrating and probing matters that will challenge all of us as we not only appreciate the role of mothers, but also our standing before the great God of heaven. To do that, let's in fact revisit the very nature of those matters surrounding the second chapter of the book of Acts. For in fact, as we move in that direction, here are some issues and thoughts that directly come face to face to each of us. There is a great need, isn't there? to be forgiven from the greatest crime of all. I say that just as surely as I can because all of us are guilty of that crime. You say, what is it? Maybe you nor I haven't taken an innocent life. Maybe we haven't murdered anyone. Maybe we haven't involved ourselves in other recognized matters that so often are hailed as so evil. But yet, sin, as it is laid forth in the Word of God, is in fact that greatest crime of all, and all of us are guilty of it. Sin, as it is portrayed for us in verses like this, is in fact the transgression of the law of God, isn't it? In 1 John 3 verse 4, we read this exact definition. Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And the human family has been guilty of such ever since the character of its entrance in the third chapter of that opening book in all of the volume of God. The remarkable fact is that all throughout that Old Testament and the New alike, we find the great disrespect that it shows to God. It is in fact that circumstance in which one in fact directly violates His precious and powerfully given will. And when you and I engage thus in sin, we in fact turn our nose to Him and in so doing, we in fact lift ourselves above Him. I'm going to do it my way, and in fact, I care not what God you have declared. I am uninterested in that which has been your declaration. I shall do it my way. And in so doing, we disrespect His authority. We disrespect Him as the Creator and Maker of it all. As you can see on some of those next statements, one cannot sin with impunity. That is to say, one can't sin and think that one will get away with it. For it's still the case, isn't it, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, 3. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That salient statement of Hebrews 4, 13. And so it is that the wages of sin is death. That statement isn't original with me, of course. It's found in Romans 6, 23. The wages, that is the compensation, what one has justly earned for sin is death. That is the end of its road. That's where it inevitably leads, and that is its invariable desti destination. To think of it that way only paints the following dramatic picture. If the end way of sin is death, and if it is the case all of us have been guilty of this, then isn't it true we are all marching toward the character of eternal, spiritual, complete and utter removal from the God of heaven? That is, in fact, what the lot of those who sin is, isn't it? You'll notice some of these verses that I've listed. 
that challenge us to remember that those kinds of matters that we have formerly described as sin, such as murder, abortion, prostitution, and all the others that rank seemingly so highly in our mind, but think about these others that point the finger maybe directly toward both you and me. The thought of foolishness is sin, Proverbs 24, 9. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin, James 4, 17. Just two among many others that might be listed in thus, when there's something good, and I'm well aware of it, but fail to bring about its accomplishment, fail to involve myself in the direction that God would allow my talents to do, that too is reckoned unto me as sin. You see, all of us are in need then of asking that very pertinent question. How do I obtain forgiveness? How is it I can be forgiven of this? Is there a way? And if so, what are the means and methods by which that forgiveness can be obtained and made full application to me as well as to you? I'd submit that a loving mother maybe often has urged by way of either direct statement or in prayer that those whom she loves will in fact appreciate God's teachings on forgiveness and avail themselves of it and make full character of that which has been God's command. Why don't we give some thought to what God has said about that subject? To do so, we might well, in fact, build a character around the second chapter of the book of Acts, thinking about what led up to it, the features of what unfolded in it, and what has been the blessed byproduct of it. Jesus had said many things during His earthly ministry, hadn't He, about the nature of forgiveness. I would ask you to think about some interesting statements first. In the 16th chapter of Matthew, for example, on this occasion as Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Of course, there would be the direct statement, wouldn't there, that quite often people would be quick to share with the apostles what their thinking and their feelings toward the Christ may have been. They would have been less apt to directly to Jesus say it. The Lord was interested on that occasion in listening to the wording and to the response of those disciples as they answered. Some say that thou art Elias. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets, or even John the Baptist. There were four particular categories listed, and then Jesus asked them, Whom do you say that I am? Now He had, in fact, more directly addressed it to them. Having heard what they said the character of the crowds had been, Peter, in his rather aggressive and bold way, he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a great statement that was. What a remarkable statement that was. So great, in fact, that the Lord commented on it as follows. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That utterance that Peter had just made, you see, wasn't the studied opinion about the character of either Peter or those about him. This was a revelation from the God of heaven. And in so doing, this revelation led Jesus to make this statement. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Lord made the promise of the construction, the building, if you please, of that which was His church, His kingdom. 
At that point, you can notice some of these statements. Following that, Jesus made this interesting statement to them. Here Jesus had stated, I'll build my church, but He said, don't tell anyone that I am the Messiah. They were to keep that thought closed to them for the time being. They were not to share it. They were not to speak of it. I would ask you to think then with me, how is forgiveness to come? They were not allowed to speak about the nature of who He was as the Messiah, as the Son of God. But then we learn in the next chapter something new. Here was the scene of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus appeared, of course, with both Moses and Elijah on that mount. Peter and James and John were blessed to be able to witness the events on that occasion. Also, following it, Jesus said, Tell no man the vision of what you've seen. However, the Lord qualified it until the Son of Man be risen from the dead. The time was going to come when their lips would be unlocked and loosed and they would be able to share forth all that would surround that message of forgiveness. You and I then need to in haste turn and find what did they say when their lips were unlocked. For in fact, that would be that message that would be so wonderful to share, not only for that day, but for this day as well. In Acts 1 verse 8, the Lord said, You should be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we notice that shortly their lips were then to be loosed, for the Lord said they were to be witnesses. What did these witnesses say? As you can note there near the bottom, Acts the second chapter begins in what may appear to have been a rather innocent way. For 1,500 years that day had begun. Maybe in a way not unlike that one had, at least for so many, the Jews were gathered for the celebration of the Pentecost. However, verses 1 through 4 quickly state that something unusual began to happen. Something rather unusual and unorthodox began to take place. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The apostles, they of course were gathered on that occasion, awaiting the power that would come upon them from on high, and then it says, a sound from heaven appeared and came. They heard a whoosh or a swish. This sound appeared in an audible fashion. And not only that, we notice as of cloven tongues, they found themselves able to speak in other tongues, in languages that they had not learned. That remarkable set of events brings us near the bottom of that slide. Because as those tongues were utilized, they began to speak. And they began to preach to that audience and to that crowd that was therein gathered. And as they did so, we noticed that the message, in fact, surrounded this. That message of forgiveness was to surround Jesus the Messiah. It was to surround that Christ. And as Peter stood rather boldly and courageously before them, he spoke about that one who not too many weeks before they had put to death. He spoke about the character of the kind of life he had lived in openness before them, working miracles and accomplishing that which was the will of God. Notice that Peter said something about forgiveness. 
Peter said something about the nature of that which could be a blessedness to them. It appears in language that we're now about to see. As so often, the characters of both Old and New Testament to that point had wished for forgiveness. Now we find that the message was open and clear. As Peter began to preach and continued his lesson that day, he lifted high the nature of the Christ as the Son of God. He lifted high the nature of the Christ as the perfect one that they had put to death. And furthermore, he said, He's also risen. He didn't just die. He rose again by the power of God, verses 23 to 25. And in so doing, He now reigns in royal, regal majesty at the right hand of the throne of God, occupying that throne set forth by David centuries earlier in at least a parallel way. Then, as Peter convicted them, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now... It's as if the blood of the Christ was dripping from their hands. Maybe in those seven weeks since, their mind had been a bit dulled about what had taken place surrounding the death of Jesus, but now Peter brings it all back to them. You crucified Him. You put Him to death. But God has made Him Lord in Christ. Verse 37 then begins in this ringing way. They were pricked in their hearts. Pricked about what? Pricked because of the awful and foul deed that they had done. The awful deed of which they had in fact been the encouragers. When Pilate, you might remember, had made his decree, I find no wrong in him. I find nothing of which he's guilty that's worthy of death. Nonetheless, it was they who cried crucify him. It was they who in fact would not be satisfied with a scourging. They still demanded His death, and now the seeds of forgiveness are directly before them because after having been pricked in their heart, it was they who asked men and brethren, What shall we do? Do for what? Do for lunch? Do with our animals while we're here celebrating the Pentecost? Do with our children while we're in need of being near the activities and festivities of the temple? No. What shall we do because of the fact we have put to death the Son of God? What shall we do? Thankfully, might we notice, Peter didn't say, there's nothing you can do. He didn't say, it is outside the realm of what you are able to accomplish. He gave them an answer and inspired response as to what they were to do with regard to that circumstance in which they were they were overcoming sin having put to death the son of god you might notice that language that follows as all of that took place the statements there in acts the second chapter verse number 38 begins like this peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It was Peter on this occasion who then boldly made this direct statement, Repent. There was a need, you see, for repentance. As we're told in the Holy Scriptures, that matter of repentance leads us to understand very well that that involves an understanding in the mind that, in fact, 
Something has been amiss. My actions have been directly opposed to the nature of the will of God and a change in my life is in order and must be accomplished. Look at some of the statements that were made about being pricked in their heart. As they were pricked, they asked a question. What was their emotional character upon the nature of that asking? Clearly, what shall we do indicated that they were greatly bothered and agitated by the realization now before them they were guilty of sin. Doesn't it sound parallel to our situation today? You and I also being guilty of sin brings us to notice that Peter's answer applies not only to them but also to us. Jesus while he was on the cross, had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would ask you to notice one other thing that Peter did not say on that day of Pentecost. You see, when the Lord prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why then on the day of Pentecost, when they asked, What shall we do? Didn't Peter say, You were forgiven seven weeks ago. You no longer, in fact, serve and live beneath the burden and barrier of that shed blood of Christ. God forgave you because the Lord prayed it. It's at this point, might we clearly notice, that for which the Lord prayed while He was on the cross came to its fruition on this day inasmuch as they responded in faith to that which was the command of God. Here, Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Thus, the sentence was all of them were in need of both repentance and confession. Now, because they were pricked in their heart, they had a belief. They were now mindful of that which they had done. And in that mindful character, they needed to take those next steps which involved their repentance. We do know that godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, but that leads, in fact, to that glory of God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. That repentance is a change of mind that manifests itself in a change of action and behavior. They were in need of that repentance. And in so doing, he said also baptism. Immersion in water for the forgiveness of sins. And isn't that exactly what Peter said? For the remission of sins. Might I point out to each of us ever so clearly and powerfully that very last statement. Who is it that Peter said that applied to? Was it just to those Jews gathered at the Pentecost? Was it just to those perhaps who lived in that first century era? Peter carefully noted in verse 39, didn't he? That this applies to you, to your children, and to all that are far off. Having direct character and statement to both you and me 20 centuries later. That same message that applied to them, those same commandments that were in need for their forgiveness, you see are just as vital and just as pertinent for you and for me to obtain that forgiveness today. You might notice that some statements continuing beyond that would lead us to that very next verse. Acts chapter 2, verse number 40. This was the text read earlier in our hearing this morning, but let's note it again if we might. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. 
The text then reveals to us that Peter on that day said many things that were stimulating, many things that were encouraging, many things that were edifying, and the text reads it as exhorting. But what were the specific statements of Peter that are recorded for us? Save yourselves from this untoward generation. That untoward generation was the fact that so many of the Jews of that occasion and day were refusing to accept the Christ. They refused to believe. They refused to repent. They had no interest in the baptism of which Peter spoke. They, you see, were this untoward generation. And other translations read that as a crooked generation. Isn't it true that they're still, perhaps in the words of a kind mother, a loving mother, who would say, the crowd will lead you, son, most of the time in the wrong direction. Here on that day of Pentecost, Peter said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Don't let the culture, do not allow society to lead you to think that you're all right the way that you are, that you're in no need of repentance or baptism, that you are, in fact, in no need of response in a positive way to God. Rather, you are in need of that open response just as God has commanded it. Peter stated that this was for the remission of sins. It was for their forgiveness. Did God follow through with that and were they forgiven upon their repentance and baptism? God keeps His word. For isn't it true, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. 2 Peter 3 verse 9. These people were forgiven, and you and I can be so today. This plan of salvation of which we've spoken, this feature that relates to the revelation of God on this day of Pentecost was an overwhelming event. It set in place, and it set in course, a way in which each individual could stand right before God, that which was not possible before. All of it perhaps prompts us as we close that same verse, verse 40, save yourselves. Although we understand that salvation certainly is of God, He authored its plan, He set in place its church, it is He who in fact with all the idea paid the price of His Son to make it happen and make it possible. But it requires a response on your part and mine. Save yourselves, Peter said. Then where does Randy stand today and what about you? Are you in need of hearing these words just as powerfully as they did then? Save yourselves. This world will say all kinds of things that are not God's plan of salvation. Saying all kinds of things, in fact, that are corruptions of it. Adding things to it, taking things from it, removing various elements also. But yet, the Word of God in this chapter and all the others still stands as complete and firm as ever absolutely unchangeable. For wasn't it the Lord who said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The 48th verse of John chapter 12. And with those things said, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Our culture, and perhaps it's ever been so, but our culture has seemingly such little interest sometimes in the things of the Bible. So little interest sometimes, and in fact, even a greater interest in encouraging one to live apart from God. Lift things up, enjoy what's here. There's always tomorrow. 
But you see, there's not always tomorrow. There's going to come some day when there will be no tomorrow. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to quote Proverbs 27.1. Forgiveness is possible. Isn't it lovely that, in fact, you and I can be forgiven of God? The concluding words, perhaps in fairness, might be put in language like this. We first of all reminded ourselves that there is this great malady known as sin. It is the greatest sickness of all. But the great physician came. And he has the words whereby that sin can be forgiven and removed, completely wiped off the memorable slate of God. But it does require that you and I save ourselves by in fact following those commandments that the Lord has delivered. Time and again in the book of Acts, we read about those who in earnestness and also with great joy and excitement responded. For they heard Peter and Paul and the others proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. And they did so by hearing the blessed news of the Christ and His coming and all that He made possible. They recognized the need for belief as it was in fact prompted of them. Jesus had said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. But that belief was followed by the necessary matter of repentance as we've studied today. There was also that reality of confession as voiced in Acts 8, 37. And then that matter that we find repeated over and over in all of those conversion accounts, the issue of baptism. It might well be that there's one or more in this audience today who upon reflection of your life recognize now that you have sins of which you've never been forgiven because you've never obeyed initially God's commandments for salvation. Remember that just as surely as they were told to repent and be baptized, you and I must do the same. Have you attended to that in your life today? If you have not, there could never be a better gift to your mother than that because it is a gift of eternity for your own soul. But what's more? You'll notice that you would then be enlisted into the service of God's kingdom and you could then be a powerful force for good in all matters of your life, of that which remains. If you have become a member of that body of Christ and have known the goodness that accords to it, but you have stepped aside from it, unbelief has become the lot of your life. You have perhaps long since reached that point where the earnestness of the Scriptures and the matters that it teaches just aren't that important to you any longer. You too can still be forgiven. 1 John 1 verses 7 through 10 identify the way. It involves your prayer and your repentance and your confession. Today we pray with you and for you. If by any of those means we can be of help to you today, realize there's a loving Father waiting for you to come. And He's urging you to save yourselves from this untoward generation. If, in fact, you need to make a public response to the call of the gospel invitation today, recognize that there's an audience here as well as in heaven who is more than overjoyed at the thought of rejoicing with you. And if we could be of assistance to you, why not let that be that which is accomplished, even now while together we stand and while we sing.